Cutting through an overload of information to get to the heart of the story. This is The Point. Hello and welcome to this Global Thinker special program on world peace and security. I'm Wang Guan. Since the 18th National Congress of the CPC, the Central Military Commission under Xi Jinping's leadership has taken on the largest military reform in the history of People's Republic of China. Seven military area commands were regrouped into five theater commands. Now, 2022 marks the 95th anniversary of the founding of the Chinese People's Liberation Army. How far is China from reaching its stated goal of building a strong army? With heightened geopolitical conflicts, rising tensions between China and the United States, what role will China's military play going forward? I'm very happy to be joined today by leading military strategists and scholars from around the world. Now, joining me in the Beijing studio is Senior Colonel Zhou Bo. He's currently a senior fellow at the Center for International Security and Strategy at Tsinghua University. We also have with us here Senior Colonel Zhang Gang, Associate Professor of the International College of Defense Studies at National Defense University of China. We also have guests joining us online from New Delhi, India. We have Major General Dibankar Banerjee, former director at Institute for Peace and Conflict Studies. From Dakar, Senegal, we have Brigadier General Alhaji Bakakar Faye. Chief of Staff at the UN Office of Military Affairs in the Department of Peace Operations. From Washington, D.C., we have Rana Mitter, Professor of the History and Politics of Modern China at Oxford University. Also from Washington, D.C., we have Sura Gupta, Senior Asia-Pacific International Relations Policy Specialist at Institute for China-America Studies. Welcome, gentlemen. Now, let me begin with you, Senior Colonel Zhou. Uh, there has been this clash of narratives, if you will. China, on one hand, asserts that it is a force for peace. I mean, it's military. But the dominant narrative by far in the West is that the Chinese military is this aggressive, expansionary military. Um, how do you look at this conflict of narratives? Well, I think it is self-evident if I just tell people to read the fact. The fact is, for over four decades, China's rise has been peaceful, and the PLA has never been involved in the war ever since 1979. So this shows China's peaceful rise, which is not seen among major powers in history. Um, what about its recent military operations across the Taiwan Strait in light of Nancy Pelosi's very controversial visit to the island? Well, actually, I believe Nancy Pelosi has actually changed the status quo because both Beijing and Washington point the finger at each other as to who actually has changed the status quo. But I think this time, Nancy Pelosi, uh, in spite of the objection from uh, President Biden or Pentagon, insisting on making such a trip. I believe she just wants to leave some legacy before her retirement. She just wants to have some limelight. But uh, this is purely for her personal gain. Uh, so as a result, PLA actually sealed off six areas to conduct uh, an unprecedented uh, blockade over, over Taiwan Island. That shows uh, both our determination to safeguard China's sovereignty, territorial integrity, and our unprecedented new capabilities. Um, both the White House in Washington, D.C. and America's new ambassador to China, Nicholas Burns, uh, during an interview with the CNN, said China's military were overreacting uh, by you know, asserting those blockades, uh, shelling those uh, 
uh, bombs uh, in around the Taiwan Strait. Um, how do you look at those American assertions? Well, if you just uh, say Chinese uh, reaction is uh, overreaction, then tell me what kind of a reaction is appropriate then. So because this is not initiated by us, therefore we are actually making a response. And this kind of uh, provocation to China is unprecedented given the importance of Nancy Pelosi's seat in American's leadership. So we warned uh, against such a trip, and uh, uh, President Xi actually had a phone conversation with President Biden. I'm not sure what they talked about, but, but from the readout, we know definitely Taiwan issue is there. And of course, given the gut feeling of a Chinese, I know how serious this conversation must be. So we give warning uh, beforehand, and we are just uh, taking necessary response. Yes, this kind of exercise is unprecedented, but, uh, but for this kind of unprecedented provocation, we probably would not be able to have such chances to do this. Senior Colonel uh, Zhang Gang, let me turn to you. Uh, considering the size, the deployment, and the posture of China's military these days, how would you characterize the role of China's military, the PLA, uh, on the world stage right now? Policies visit to Taiwan is a political provocation. So uh, this uh, exercise shows China has the capability and uh, to to safeguard our our territory, territorial integrity and sovereignty. Uh, but how far would China go? Would China's military go eventually? Um, you know, given the persistent provocations from the United States. Uh, I think uh, that, that reminds, reminds me of what uh, our defense minister Wei Feng has said. If anyone dared to split Taiwan out of China, we will not hesitate to fight. We, uh, we take any price and uh, we'll fight to the end. All right. Um, I do want to get some perspectives from outside China. Um, Major General Banerjee, how do you look at the role of China's military? Uh, these days, uh, what kind of role do you think it has been playing around the world? The PLA now has emerged in this recent era as the largest military in the world, very sophisticated. In the last 15 years, major restructuring and reorganization has taken place, as a consequence of which the PLA is the, uh, definitely the one of two, perhaps, leading armed force in the world. Its Navy is the largest. Its Air Force has acquired in recent years uh, very sophisticated uh, long-range uh, bomber aircraft, uh, fighter aircraft. It has uh, reorganized its land forces into, as you mentioned, theater commands. It has also uh, uh, re-established its strategic support forces to meet the challenges of the new generation of war that uh, the world is confronting today and China is well in line to prepare for that. And hence, I would say that uh, whether an uh, army is for peaceful purposes or not is uh, not really on the merit of the army, but depends upon the policy of respective governments. How is that armed force used actually uh, in the international relations, in furtherance of national interests. And of course, I must say, in that context, China's role in recent years have been 
defensive and has been more in the nature of uh, uh, preparing for war mm -hmm. rather than an engagement of hostile operations. But that is how I would like to def I define this thing. And uh, in that context, I think uh, we welcome China's engaging with the world, new policies that the chairman has laid down. For example, I'm sure we'll discuss on the Global Security Initiative laid out last year, which laid out a grand policy for the world in realms of defense and security. All right. Um, Professor Radha Mitter, you wrote a book about China. Um, that name is Forgot The Forgotten Ally. Um, if you were to write a book now on the actual role China's military plays versus its how it's perceived by Western countries, uh, how would you put it? Well, I should just explain that title, Forgotten Ally, refers to the fact that China was the first and most um, long-lasting ally in the Second World War, uh, of course, in um, cooperation with the United States and the British Empire after Pearl Harbor in 1941, uh, and the uh, Chinese role essentially in that Second World War experience, fighting against the Axis powers, tends to be a little forgotten in the outside world. So that's why I use that, that title. And the context I think we really need to bring to bear, and I'd like to get this into the conversation early on, is something that's very different from the 1930s and 40s when I wrote that, uh, the period about which I wrote that historical book concerning the World War II period. Because today, the world center of economic gravity has moved to the Asia Pacific region. And China is central to that, but also China is part of a nexus, a network of economic links which are underpinned by some quite complex questions of security. So to some extent, I think we can say in the Asia Pacific region, we are talking about a region where security is basically debated between major powers, between China, the United States with its naval presence, for instance, and also Japan, which we shouldn't forget is also a very major security actor in the region. But beyond that, we have seen in recent years, one of the things that for global stability, global prosperity, global growth is absolutely essential at this post-COVID time, which is the capacity to integrate and have a stable economic environment in the Asia Pacific. We can see that there are major trade groupings such as the RCEP, the Regional Common Economic Partnership, in which China, along with other Asian actors, is a major player. And there are emergent uh, groups such as CPTPP, the Comprehensive and Progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership, in which China has applied for membership and which currently has other major powers, including Japan and also the United Kingdom, I should say, a country where I am uh, based at the, uh, at the moment. So what's my point? My point here is that actually, if we're going to understand what actually creates a stable, continuous growth in the region, one that's underpinned by the real necessity for the next decade or so, which I would say actually is trying to balance the demands of climate change adaptation with the need for economic growth and bringing people out of poverty, then actually making sure that we concentrate on the economic goods in the region and China plays an absolutely central role in that, and so do the other partners in the region, including Japan and the Southeast Asian nations. Yeah, talking about global goods, uh, security is one of them. I want to bring in General Faye over there at the United Nations. Uh, General Faye, how do you look at China's role, China's contributions to UN peacekeeping missions? Uh, thank you very much. Uh, uh, China is uh, among the P5 members 
in United Nations. And when you look at uh, the contribution of China, is, uh, China is ranked almost the first among the P5 because of its contribution, financial contribution, but also uh, as a TCC through contributing countries. So, and uh, today uh, China is almost in uh, more than five missions uh, around the world. America decided to cut off its contribution to United Nations funds. It was a huge challenge for us to continue uh, managing the peacekeeping operation. And then China has taken over ma major, co major contribution in form of uh, extra budget funding. It was great. Um, Mr. Gupta, how do you look at a contrast between uh, you know, the actual functions of the Chinese military versus the dominant narratives of the Chinese military uh, by people in Washington, D.C., for example? In, the in 40 years of, of reform and opening up, uh, less than 150 uh, soldiers have died in anger on China's vast maritime and territorial front frontiers. This is an exceptional record. If we can have reform, the new round of reform and, and opening up go on for 30 more years, uh, imagine what a peaceful place Asia can be and what a dynamic and prosperous place uh, Asia can be. I would like to see a little bit more creativity in China's dispute resolution, territorial dispute resolution, which will also kind of take away some of these accusations with regard to the military. We have to understand, you know, every major leader, I'm talking from Mao down, in the first 10 years of their, uh, of their, of their uh, power in office, uh, they have creatively resolved some territorial disputes or set and train the resolution. This is really the first time since the founding of the People's Republic that we've had no real movement on creative dispute resolution in, in, in China's borders. And that is what I think is creating anxiety. And so China has been a peaceful force, a force of peace and stability, but at the same time, it creates anxieties of what its true intentions are down the line. And, and therefore, I think there is this disjuncture at China's end that it is peaceful and the record shows it's peaceful. And yet many of its neighbors and the West uh, fear its assertiveness and what might be what might come down the line in the future. Yeah, it is important to you know, keep articulating China's intentions uh, to a Western audience. Uh, Senior Colonel Joe, I want to talk about the issue of Taiwan in light of America's provocations, i.e. Uh, Nancy Pelosi's visit to the province of Taiwan, do you think that is accelerating Beijing's plan to reunify with the island and by force if necessary? Well, uh, I think uh, uh, Beijing has uh, made it quite clear that uh, uh, we want to have peaceful reunification with the island, provided in three circumstances which are fully um, uh, laid down in the China's anti secession law. So Three circumstances. Yes, the first is uh, the Taiwanese authority uh, declare independence, which I believe would not be possible at all because uh, that would immediately uh, invite China's military response. The second thing is um, major forces, uh, you know, uh, creating kind of a situation leading to Taiwan separating. Well, there is a kind of ambiguity here, but I believe it is actually uh, is referring to foreign forces, uh, yeah, aiming at splitting China. But I believe Nancy Pelosi's uh, 
this visit is very much in this category. The third situation is uh, if the management believes that uh, the opportunity for peaceful reunification is uh, exhausted uh, for good, then the mainland uh, has to use force. So provided for these three circumstances, it is, of course, in our best interest uh, for us to reach, uh, achieve peaceful reunification. So coming back to your question, I believe uh, this time is actually a direct warning from mainland as to what we might be doing should the United States provoke China in such a manner. It would be naive to think that uh, Joe Biden, as leader of the Democratic Party, has no control whatsoever over the Democratic caucuses in the Congress. Um, but do you think China and America are moving ever closer to war, even if not an all-out war, but minor skirmishes in the waters or in the air? Well, if you want me to describe my best hope for this China-U.S. relationship, I would just use one word, that is manageable. But the question is how, how it might be managed. Because, uh, you see, uh, as a kind of a follow-up uh, uh, measures, China actually has announced uh, to actually scrap uh, the, uh, the talks between the military, yeah, to, to stop the, the consultation, so on and so forth. Well, this actually uh, might just seem harsh uh, toward uh, uh, some observers, but this also indicates that the Taiwan issues is really China's core interest. And for this core interest, China could actually make all necessary sacrifices. Senior Colonel John, let me turn to you and ask you the same question. Do you think Washington and Beijing are inching ever closer um, to war, no matter how reluctant or you know, begrudging Beijing is, given Washington's provocations? If you look back to history, uh, when a war is broken out, uh, sometimes it's because of the, the frictions on the front lines. In other situations, it broke out because of the political, political provocations. And I think uh, the Speaker Pelosi's visit to Taiwan is, uh, is a political provocation. It just proves that she's an irresponsible, not serious politician. Obviously, Washington is pl promising one thing on one hand, you know, through the three communiques and doing another by sending one of their most senior officials to uh, you know, the, a province of China that it acknowledges as a province, as a part of China although it chose to use a very, uh, you know, ambivalent word of uh, acknowledging. Uh, let me turn to you, Major General Banerjee. How do you look at Washington's postures in Asia-Pacific? If you think about the Quad, the AUKUS, the Five Eyes Alliance, and also most recently, IPAF, which also has a geopolitical flavor at uh, countering or at least hedging against China. Uh, is Washington's, are Washington's moves making you know, China this aggressive power a self-fulfilling prophecy? You know, I think today we are undergoing globally a very challenging times. The global geopolitical environment is undergoing dramatic changes. Geostrategically, the weapons of war are being upgraded and their destructive potential is being highlighted even more. And currently, the possibility of their being used in the Ukraine situation and the similar armaments in the Indo-Pacific that are being currently built up. The trend towards nuclearization that one is seeing, both in Europe as well as in the Indo-Pacific, is a cause for serious concern. And therefore, 
all our energies and efforts must be directed towards ensuring that conflict situations are diffused. These are addressed in a non-confrontational, non-war-like manner. And hence, methods and procedures to further that must be a very important part of our focus today. And in that context, I would like to once again mention Global Security Initiative requires to be addressed. But I'm sure we'll be coming to that later. But in that context, let me also say that China's role in the United Nations peacekeeping operations in the last 20 years, 30 years, has been very dramatic and significant. Actually, I was present in Beijing in 1990 when this was discussed at a very high level in the PLA and with uh, international support, and I was one of the persons present in that. And since then, in the last 30 years, as we know, China has contributed some 50,000 soldiers, by far the largest uh, of uh, the permanent members of the Security Council, and also in terms of financial support. And so, hence, I think we have to today look at these emerging problems, like the one that is going on in Ukraine now, potential conflicts in the Pacific, including the one in the northeastern Pacific Ocean, uh, in Taiwan and other islands of the region, and in the South China Sea, in a very different perspective. How to prevent conflicts breaking out, not just who's right, who's wrong, and who has the right to attack or not. Uh, this is a challenge that confronts the entire global strategic mm -hmm. community today. I want to bring in Professor Rana Mitter again. Uh, Professor Mitter, uh, to what extent do you think the West is uh, misunderstanding and perhaps even distorting the intentions and objectives of China's military? Oh, I think both sides are failing to understand each other. I think there's one particular <coughs> element that has been very important in previous decades that is missing now, and which I can sum up in one word that we need to bring back. And that word is dialogue. I think that one of the things that is most urgent is the ramping up of extensive and multi-layered dialogue between key actors in major countries. And we keep talking about US and China. I point out that as someone who's based in the United uh -huh. Kingdom, uh, you know, we may not have so much of a direct link with China all the time. But of course, there are many other countries around the world that also have a real interest in this wider, uh, wider discussion. The questions of lowering the tension, talking about the creativity that was mentioned, I think, by Dr. Gupta, and the, the new sort of thinking that enables people to think outside the box that I think has been implied in everything that all of our speakers have said. I'll be honest with you, that can't come even through a video. We're talking on video screen at the moment, and that's great for having some sort of um, discussion. But I think in terms of getting people into a room who have had long experience of working with each other and understanding how to bring down the tensions, that's important for the Chinese side. It's important for the American side. It's important for other actors in Asia and elsewhere. It needs to expand much more, and there needs to be much more talking in quiet rooms behind the scenes mm -hmm. where there are no cameras and nobody recording what's going on. We all know that looking at history, that's where the really important um, uh, decisions during the Cold War between the Soviet Union and the United States were actually calmed mm -hmm. down. Not when the cameras were on in the official rooms with people putting forward their talking points in the same way that they mm -hmm. always do, but actually having a serious discussion with nuance, subtlety, and creativity. That's what we need right now. Mr. Suragupta, um, Rana talked about a very important issue of having meaningful and substantive dialogue 
sometimes even in the form of private conversations uh, behind closed doors when cameras were shut. Um, but do you think that window of opportunity for a meaningful dialogues between Washington and Beijing are closing these days, given uh, the politicization of issues, given domestic politics on both sides, uh, and given uh, you know, other factors such as path dependence? I wouldn't necessarily say they are closing, but let me say this from the Chinese perspective, uh, it would much prefer that the Democrats and President Biden, who President Xi has had a long interaction with for, for many years, they are far more preferred than a Republican administration. I have already seen in this administration uh, both sides trying to lay a floor beneath which the relationship will not sink. While during the last few years of the Trump administration, there was no limit to which the relationship could sink. Yes, both sides have an incentive to talk. I think both sides are much better off talking. I wouldn't have very high expectations for talk right now, simply because everybody is going into a very heightened political season right now. We have the midterms coming up, but more importantly, it's the 20th Party Congress. And so at this point of time, I would say diplomacy becomes that much more important just to maintain that connection between the two sides. But uh, I would not be too pessimistic about the two sides talking. I think 2023 will see both sides see each other in a renewed vision and really ratchet up engagement, including, and I would think this would be across the board, it'll be in the area of military, it'll be climate, it'll be economics. The, the impression will be created that the two sides are standoffish and don't want to talk when the fact of the matter is they really don't have their interlocutors ready to talk because of politics. Let's see when uh, the, the leaders of both capitals uh, will be able to meet face to face. I want to thank all of our panelists for this fascinating discussion and thank you, our dear audience from around the world for tuning in for this Global Thinker special on world peace and security. I want to thank all of you here. I'm Wang Guan in Beijing. Bye and take care. We all enter this world with a universal greeting. <laughs> we then learn to speak. Though our languages, cultures, and traditions may differ, we still share one thing in common. We have hope for humanity and the world. Hear the difference. Join our global network to connect with the world.